Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Making Action Happen, the show we do every Thursday for our members, our Action 22 members, for Coloradans, and now for people around the world. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. Welcome back. So um, today's show is fun for us um, because we're celebrating the end of the legislative session. And for all of you policy nerds out there who listen to our show regularly, of course, we had to have the incomparable Mike Beasley back. He has been bare-knuckling it up there at the Capitol this entire session, and he deserves a hero's welcome home for going through all that. Mike, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, so we've talked about the session. You you came on in the middle of it and before. Um, And then I always like to ask you this question every year. Uh, is this session different um, or is it the same? How is it? How, you know, what's going on? Um, and so I'll, I, I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask you. So how does this uh, session compare to other sessions in your career? Uh, th- this has been the toughest time in the 30 years I've been around this process, not just because of the sheer volume and the weight of the work that we've done, but how difficult it was to communicate with legislators and then back to us in the executive branch during COVID. It, you know, it's very difficult, you know, you, to lobby without paper and, you know, being able to get into a room and meet with the legislator. I don't know about you or your listeners and viewers, but I just am sick of Zooms. Uh, you know, it's hard to read somebody's body language, their face, et cetera, when, when we're working so differently. Uh, and, you know, the 2020 session, you know, when you think about it, let me go back. When you think about it, we've had at least sessions since January of 2019, because in 2020 and in this year, we stopped and we started. We stopped and we started. And and that meant that we never stopped working. We're always trying to stay ahead of the policies uh, right. uh, and really kind of help facilitate meaningful uh, dialogue around these big issues. And it was just really, really hard. And having said that, I'm glad that it's over. Um, and I think it's fair to say that from a, from a state policy perspective, this was a transformational session. It really was. So along that vein, um, talk a little bit about uh, or give us some examples of a, what you mean by a transformational session. You know, the the legislature passed Senate Bill 260, which is a bill that put $5.4 billion over the next several years into transportation um, with some modest um, gas tax adjustment, but with big fee increases on things like when folks use Uber or they have food delivered to their house, um, prioritization of some general fund money, um, state general fund money into roads and um, you know, when you look at that bill on the whole, I think it was testified that at least 25 to 30 percent of those dollars is going into not necessarily that traditional uh, road, um, you know, bu- you know, filling potholes and building bridges, but 
um, into per, uh, the beginnings of a massive in, uh, investment in infrastructure for electric vehicles, that type of thing. So that's a huge shift. Um, really one of the first states in the country to make that kind of policy decision. And so we'll have to see how it turns out. Um, go ahead. The buzzword for uh, for all of that was multimodal. Every time, and we, I have to give props to these guys because they really did a very thorough job on the stakeholder side of it. It was really great, but I was sick to death of hearing multimodal. And I literally called you one day and said, please explain to me what this actually is. Well, multimodal is a vision that, you know, you can't fix um, our transportation problems by just building the roads. You need to get people off the roads into uh, public transportation like light rail or buses, um, encourage um, different types of growth and development patterns that uh, rely on, on folks taking bikes or building communities that um, uh, where you can walk to work, walk stores, uh, restaurants, et cetera. And I think that works well in high density areas. I think it will remain, it remains to be seen in my mind how that will work in a state that is mostly, you know, large rural geographic areas um, where density of that type doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. It's almost laughable when you do a compare and contrast with um, that, with that in mind. Um, and ultimately, it passed. When will we start to feel the effects of it, of the transportation bill? You know, it's a good question. You'll start to see, you know, the, 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 administ the governor's administration has put a lot of thought into this, his Department of Transportation. Uh, you're going to start to see um, more orange cones and more conversations in communities about these um, multimodal solutions, I think, within weeks. Um, that's how fast that it'll move. Um, and that folks will start to see it on their, their Uber app and that type of thing. Um, you know, and again, I think we'll have to, it's going to be important for folks in rural Colorado to make sure that their voice is heard as this is developed and people think about it. It's always important. And I mean it in a respectful way, but you always have to remind folks that at, at, at any level of government, that life exists outside of Denver. And um, it just, I can't underscore that enough. And so seeing how it's implemented, how Main Street revitalization, you know, what it looks like, how it takes effect, it's gonna be really important for organizations like Action 22 and your listeners uh, and, and viewers to, to make sure they're active participants. Yeah, and that that's, you brought it up. That's why Action 22, Club 20, Pro 15 are important because life does exist outside of Denver. And we can be the voice for that. And we have to encourage our membership. And, you know, they have to stay vocal in this. This isn't a, we pass it and it's done. You still have to be involved with this going forward, correct? Absolutely. And now more than ever, right? The ink's going to dry on this, on these types of bills. And we'll talk about some more in a bit. But this is a major change in the law and, uh, and in policy. And so, um, you know, the governor and others have reached out. They want to, they want to know. What, what you all think, and it's important to make sure that you deliver that message and, and help them achieve that vision. And to be fair, too, uh, during this whole process, the, the governor's office, the legislators, they, they did, they opened that stakeholder process, and they called us weekly asking, you know, how does your membership feel about this? 
you know, is this the right thing to do for rural Colorado or the Action 22 area? And well, that's why, difference, yeah. And that's why we came out in support of it. Yeah, um, that was and, the primary reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they actually made changes uh, to some of their the drafts based on those conversations. And that was, uh, even though we didn't 100% love it and we had, you know, we had a few people that weren't happy with us that we did support it. We, I think we have to continue to support or encourage that stakeholder involvement because we saw a lot of bills this year that did not have that. So let's talk, first let's talk losses and then we can talk wins. Well, let me conclude uh, the transportation part by saying the hard part wasn't passing the bill, it's gonna be implementing it. And so oh, yeah. really have an, an obligation to um, kind of jump in and, and, and have a say in that. Um, you know, I, I don't, the governor again talked about it in the state of the state about, you know, this being a trans, transformational session for Colorado and it really was. They um, had a $34 billion budget that ended up having about $4 billion more state dollars to spend uh, than they thought that they would. And they were able to do things like education. So education was a big winner, K through 12. Um, you know, they were able to store many, many of the cuts that they made over the last year and a half um, and then get more money into the classroom uh, per kid across the state. Historic um, um, a Supreme Court decision on how uh, um, the, the state and local governments will work together on how they assess property tax and the mill levies related to schools. They were able to put a, a record amount of money into affordable housing. $800 million of state money, that does include the two plus billion dollars they used to federal money for uh, COVID response and stimulation of the economy. Um, for example, uh, you know, workforce retraining to supporting our cultural facilities, right? Um, um, you know, kind of really working on a, on a Colorado stimulus plan that had both not only federal funds, but state uh, funds as well. You know, lots of winners there, right? I mean, trying to um, climb out of this hole um, and to uh, get people to work um, and then you continue to grow the economy is big. But I think what you're going to see over the next year, if I were to forecast something for everyone that's watching and listening is uh, what inflation is going to do, because inflation is going to eat up a lot of these gains in the budget. Um, we not only have growth, but now we'll have inflation, a growth in population, but this inflationary piece. So if you've gone to get gas lately or went to go buy milk or what have you, um, you can see that's going to affect the cost of health care for people in our jails, for our senior citizens, um, how we fund the School Finance Act, how higher ed wants to come and say, well, I need to raise tuition a little bit more than what we had thought because of inflation. So that is the downside of, of um, what I see coming, but I mostly see, um, you know, positive there. Um, I, you know, the legislature um, took on tax policy, tax uh, policy reform. So they did do about $370 million, $375 million worth of tax cuts. I think um, uh, members of the legislature who voted for this would call it tax policy reform, um, but they really did, you know, 
in some business deductions, raise taxes on certain individual, how individuals report their, their earnings, um, and then redistributed those revenues um, to, you know, um, earned income tax credit and those types of things to help um, folks in our economy that don't benefit from those types of tax cuts. So um, it's a big, it's a very big deal. Um, they did so much of it that in fact, it's forecasted they're going to take in so much new revenue that we're now going to be giving some money back distributed under Tabor to all taxpayers, which seems odd to some considering the voters in the last election cut income tax um, and said to the legislature, we don't want you to create a, a lot of mechanisms outside of Tabor uh, in our constitution to fund government services. So watching how that is implemented and how that's described to the voters uh, will be interesting for sure. So um, just really quickly, uh, I don't know that a lot of, especially if they're outside of Colorado, but not a lot of our um, listeners may understand what that, how that works with the Tabor refunds. Like how does that, can you break that down for us a little bit? State government, unlike most local governments in Colorado since 1992, can only take in a certain amount of new dollars every year. So a growth factor of around 6%. Um, and that's to try and limit the size of growth. And that was a citizen, citizen initiative from 20 some years ago. Um, and that has made it difficult to keep up on roads, on healthcare, on the expense of things like corrections, uh, keeping a, a, a higher ed affordable for Colorado kids, that type of thing. Um, some would argue and some would say, look, I just want to control the, the size of government. And that's why we did it. So we're going to have to see how all of this works um, uh, over the next several months and how the legislature will prioritize spending moving forward. Part of that conversation, just so you, you're aware, the legislature um, created a, a few bills at the end of session that takes this next bunch of federal funds, let's call it about $3.8 billion that we're gonna get as part of COVID. They spent about, give or take about a billion, let's say. They created a, a bank account for affordable housing, for example, about 550 million and some other different pots of money. And then this starting in the late summer and into fall, they're gonna have interim committees that actually 22 and your listeners will want to watch and participate in on how they want to see that that next tranche of federal funds spent between now and, and um, I believe the last batches can be uh, spent by 2026. So the state took the dollars and they put them into bank accounts. How does and who from housing like can withdraw how do they withdraw that money? How does that, is that going to work? Or do no, they even know yet? They don't know yet. The legislature is going to have what they'll call interim committees or committees this summer where they'll take testimony from groups like Action 22 and um, and all of your, you know, the folks that are listening. Uh, and, and, and they'll take recommendations on how to spend that. And then they'll run legislation in the next session in 2022 uh, on how to obligate and spend those dollars. And let me say, it's historic. I've never seen this kind of money in the state budget. You can really talk about transformation. You can really be very, as much as the federal government dollars will allow us to use them for different purposes, you can really make a big difference in how Colorado looks and lives in the years ahead. 
So that leads us before we go to break to um, that was a great segue to what we're doing tomorrow. And it's this um, stop to collaborate and listen about exactly that. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to uh, utilize the state for some of these projects? Uh, I was up at CCI this weekend and uh, Werfano County um, is getting $1.3 million. Werfano County, this tiny, poor little county is getting $1.3 million. They are definitely going to have to go back to the table to get all the projects and everything that they need done down there on infrastructure and everything else um, and really do, we're going to have to really help them and do a good job on that. So that's tomorrow. Um, it's going to be, it'll be Facebook Live if you want to stop and listen uh, to it. There's a, we have a lot of people coming in and mayors and county commissioners and uh, citizens, and we're just going to start these conversations then. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about what some of the bigger lifts were, uh, some things that we, uh, as an organization, with your help, we're going to put in the win column, um, if we could call it that, uh, but also some of the bigger fights that happened or the bigger struggles that happened this session. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. 
to reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back, everybody. So, Mike, there was the public option. This has been years and years and years in the making. Give us a brief uh, update on what happened with the public option. Well, you know, the public option is something that uh, is being talked about around the country. Washington State is the first one, is, and, and for those who are listening and watching, that's a... Um, a government-backed health plan, um, uh, insurance plan. And, you know, Colorado tried to model um, what Washington State did, but they couldn't quite get agreement, not just among Republicans and Democrats, but even among Democrats. And so, um, you know, they are starting uh, on January 1st of 2022, the Commissioner of Insurance will establish by rule Internet health insurance plan that our private uh, health providers um, will be required to offer to uh, the individual and small group market. And so I think for folks in rural Colorado, that's a significant, and small businesses, that's a significant um, uh, step into the market by government. It's not, again, not quite what they did in Washington State. Um, one of the things that both parties agreed that is that this really needs to be done through a very public stakeholder process. It can't just be done by a handful of folks in the division of insurance in Denver. And so the bill is very specific about that. And that they, and if you buy your, if you're buying your health plan now off the, um, uh, off the exchange, the, the car health benefit exchange, um, they really want to model whatever is offered to the public off of those types of plans. So it's just, you know, the goal was to inject a little bit more competition. What was controversial is that it requires, you know, it allows the commissioner to, um, you know, set rates for those plans, it, uh, you know, and the, the network adequacy and all of those things, you know, the commissioner is a, a big, big, um, more so than, like, like he, if he were his own insurance company. And um, so not only what hospitals get reimbursed, but medical providers get reimbursed. And if they don't participate, this bill fines them for not doing it. So that's, that, that isn't necessarily a market signal, you know, that is, um, so that's unique. And so we're gonna have to see how that works. Um, and we'll see how that's implemented over the next two, three years. Will they be able to, uh make any decisions on how they participate, like in what way and what aspects of it they would participate, or is it just all or nothing? Uh, it's my view. It's all or nothing. Now that's the way it's written today, but in, in defense of the proponents of this bill, there will be a lot of rulemaking. So the commissioner will take this bill, commissioner of insurance, and, and he and his staff will refine these things and take comments and, and work on how to implement that with that, through that stakeholdering process, it's so intensive throughout this new statute. So very, very big um, policy um, shift, and we'll have to see how it's implemented. If they do it right, it'll be the model, a model for the rest of the country, the similar 
similar to the way Washington State has modeled their approach. So with this going forward, do you predict that it will drive the cost of insurance down in some of these communities? I know some of the poorest communities and also the resort towns, which have citizens of Colorado that live there and they're not necessarily the uh, rich, affluent property owners in like Aspen. Will this drive the cost of healthcare down for them or will it impact that at all? The goal, that's exactly the goal, right? That if this plan is injected into the market um, with lower rates, um, that the, the, the rest of the market will respond to try and, and meet that. I know that's a stated goal and I, I think it's a good one. Um, we just have to see how it works and how it's implemented. And I, I would say the opponents of this bill, and I didn't work on this particular bill in my line of work, um, um, I, I would just say they would say that th those goals would be impossible to achieve. So both sides um, agreed to disagree and created a statute that forces the conversation, in my opinion, to continue. And, and I, that's probably a good thing. Let's talk about passenger rail. So, you know, there's a real, um, there was a bill um, that created a, an authority in statute similar to the regional transportation district up in, in the Denver metro area for um, the development of, of uh, a train to connect many parts of the front range uh, together by a train system. Why all of a sudden, you know, after talking about it for years, did that pop up? Um, in, a, in a bill form. You know, it's my view that um, the, 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 our new president talked about in his infrastructure bill, you know, mil billions of dollars for states that have these types of mechanisms in place that, um, you know, it, um, that they could partner with local governments, state governments, to help develop this vision. Uh, and again, as I talked about earlier on the transportation bill, you know, many people believe that you can't, in this case, have I-25 is going to be able to carry all of the traffic and all of the growth that we're going to see over the next uh, several decades. So maybe a train would help along the front range, similar to places like California is currently developing. So it, it allows, this bill allows those local communities uh, until 2024 to put something on the ballot to see if folks all the way from uh, Adams County to Pueblo County uh, and everything in between, if, if they can figure out a way to develop a plan, identify where a train would go, all the infrastructure that supports that type of multimodal transportation um, uh, and, how they and ask the voters if they're willing to tax themselves. You, I believe that if the infrastructure bill the president talks about is passed and you can see in today's news, those conversations have largely um, fallen um, away from a bipartisan solution there in DC into more of one that Democrats will need to shoulder on their own. Um, whether or not, you know, if the federal government does get it together and does pass those dollars to the state, you almost can guarantee between now and 2024 a ballot measure um, to add state dollars, local tax dollars to that mix. I think our concern on that was, um, well, it's a tough one because the way the proposal is drawn up, uh, it would benefit uh, our east, some of our eastern plains, like uh, Otero County would definitely benefit, um, Pueblo County would benefit, and then it would go north. But we still have our good friends 
down by Trinidad, Los Animas, and even into New Mexico, Raton, that that wasn't a part of this uh, proposal. Is there, was there any explanation that you saw or any rationale that you saw as to why that wasn't the case? You know, I think they're looking at where ex where infrastructure current, the proponents were looking, where does rail infrastructure exist now and that those can be redeveloped and, and um, uh, reimagined uh, in a way that meets this broader goal. Um, nothing precludes a change in the statute in the next year to add our counties to that taxing mix. Or that even was going to be my next question. Either take communities out, you know. Um, El Paso County commissioners voted to oppose this bill because they didn't believe there was enough stakeholdering and enough planning into it. Um, and other communities in places like Aurora loved it. And so it underscores the point that there's a lot more conversation that needs to be done. And Colorado probably should, it's probably good policy to get Colorado's act together in case the feds um, uh, get their act together and start sending federal dollars to us. Now, I wouldn't advise anyone, especially if they're driving and listening to us at the same time, don't hold your breath that all of that's going <laughs> to be good sense to start thinking and planning. Agreed. And, and just, just so you know, it's twofold for Pueblo because um, a lot of the rail that will be manufactured is out of Evraz here in Pueblo. Oh, I so see. So with this project going forward, that impacts Pueblo because Evraz kind of has this up and down uh, employment, you know, it, it's every two years laid off, hiring, right. hiring. This would solidify a great contract for Evraz and ensure that there would be employees there and hiring people to build this rail for this specific project. No, that would be tremendous. And, and I would, I'm sort of half cheering because, you know, if it does happen and, and we can see that, but I definitely would like to see um, our, our Los Animas County um, and those South uh, benefit from this. So I have to say for probably the last two months, um, I've been in more com uh, communication with you than I have my own mom, <laughs> Mike. I, it's, uh, and the two big things that we have um, been trying to, to keep the conversation or to get something reasonable out of were, of course, ag and energy. So let's first talk about ag um, and how that all went, and then let's talk about energy. Well, I think agriculture on the plus side, I think they would tell you that um, those communities would tell you they're, they're grateful for the legislature's support in a bipartisan fashion um, of uh, the delivery of federal COVID relief dollars, um, not just to their local governments, but to their, you know, the, the opportunities for rural businesses. Um, we know that there are these federal and state dollars are being made available to store more of Colorado's water, uh, that type of thing. And I, I, I know that that's a benefit. What the, the, that conversation was somewhat overshadowed by a conversation about, um, um, you know, legislation that provided agricultural workers more employment protection um, and uh, ended up being one of the fiercest um, emotional discussions that I've seen in many years in the legislature. Um, it, it gives ag agricultural workers the right to organize and join uh, labor unions um, through engaging in collective bargaining and also the uh, right to strike. Um, they were 
they there was a conversation and a lot of legislators you know that don't aren't familiar with the agriculture operations and both parties were didn't know that sometimes in ag operations um meal breaks and rest periods um weren't set in stone that they had to go with the conditions that the workers were working in um that their salaries weren't necessarily um, similar to those that might work in a retail establishment in in a any part of our in our state. And the bill requires wages to be set and adjusted annually for cost of living, and that overtime be paid as well. And um, that was very controversial for a lot of different reasons. Um, and what I saw, the bill that I just described to you in a very generic sense was one that both sides of that bill seemed very unhappy. Um, 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 and they did compromise, right? The bill I just described to you was a compromise by both sides, even though Republican legislators, you know, were really... Um, um, very strong and loud about their concerns, its effect on we have a world economy. Um, and the proponents of the bill felt like they had given too much, that they had carved out too many different types of employee groups that would not have now state protection in our state law. And so um, this is another one that created a, um, an advisory committee at the state level to advise the governor and others on how to implement it. It'll be really important for members of Action 22 and your listeners and viewers to be very active in, in terms of how that turns out and how that's implemented. And that's going to be another summer interim committee, correct? I, that's one that'll go on for longer than this summer because obviously this will take time to implement and um, and to see how what the experience and, and how it works. You know, um, you know, rural Colorado is concerned. I mean, they're concerned about the effects of bills like this, understandably so, and they're worried about how the threat of an initiative um, might scare off um, the the organizers of the National Western Stock Show that our stock show may leave Colorado um, for, um, so they don't have to worry about the threat of citizen initiative that is really anti-rural Colorado, anti-agriculture, anti, um, you know, I'll call our livestock community. So it's very important that we pay attention to these things. Okay, let's talk about um, the other big one that there was lots and lots of, uh, of fists throwing um, is, and that's energy. You know, so I would argue that the, I would suggest that the, the conversation, you know, the governor was very clear that he didn't want um, one board um, non-elected in Colorado having control of whole sectors of our economy related to emissions and that they could be ordered to do things that would affect, you know, the economy in, in broad terms. Um, right ultimately compromised on that bill um, and uh, gave broad authority. Many of your listeners are going to, if they're not familiar with, they will in the years ahead, the Air Quality Control Commission, yep. because to be able to set goals uh, that exceed, in my opinion, um, what's in, you know, emission reduction goals. Um, and it's not just about, you know, like Black Hills or XL Energy. It's in the manufacturing sector that will affect um, everything from the Suncor refinery in Commerce City to the steel mill in Pueblo, for example, 
ag operations, anywhere there's manufacturing, they're going to really want to pay attention to how this bill is implemented. And if that commission exceeds those state goals, that they really are engaged to make sure that they can mitigate the impact of the economy. So here's my big concern. Well, and it's a concern that we voiced all along. And, and we actually had agreed with the governor about, and it was Senate Bill 200. We testified against it a couple of times. Um, and our big concern is we do not like governance by rulemaking, and especially with this commission. So the thing that's ironic about this is the governor appoints the Air Quality Control Commission, and even he had a problem with the Air Quality Control Commission having these broad sweeping powers. Um, and so the, they moved the, so they basically moved that over to, um, if I'm, if I'm remembering this right, they moved a lot of those provisions over from the Senate bill to a House bill, 1266. Is that right? I would say not provisions. I would say concepts. Okay. Uh, very different into a different bill. Uh, House Bill 1266 um, that didn't have a hearing. Um, so there wasn't really any public testimony on a 25 page amendment. Now, having said that, um, the process of the AQCC is a very public one. Um, the, the Action 22, the State Chamber of Commerce, um, uh, and everyone in between was um, engaged once that language was introduced this last Monday. Uh, it's hard to believe it was just introduced on Monday and it's already passed. Uh, um, and it, it will affect our economy and, and, and planning certainty for businesses and governmental entities for generations, um, whether, you know, in terms of how it's implemented. So we really, I think every Coloradan is an environmentalist, right? I really Absolutely. do. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. And so I think that box is checked. Now the conversation is, well, how do you want to do better? And on, on top of all the other things that we've done in the past. And I think the proponents of this bill uh, get that there are goals to reduce emissions and to clean our, our air in Colorado, but they want more uh, certainty that it's actually happening. And that it's not just people on their electric utility um, or their gas utility, but it's in whole segments of our economy. Uh, again, for example, manufacturing, agriculture, et cetera. So we're really, this is a big bill. Um, one of the biggest ones that I've seen in many years in this space, and it's going to take a lot of uh, attention uh, by folks like us to, to make sure it's implemented properly. I kind of feel like we're going to have to have a, an Action 22 committee just that will watchdog the Air Quality Control Commission. And I think it's something that I'm going to have a conversation with our board about tomorrow because uh, as we saw uh, in the middle of all this, we were looking into the transportation funding bill and we tripped across, uh, and it was completely unrelated, but we tripped across a, a bill that had been proposed um, by the commission that would charge people, in effect, charge people to go to work or charge companies for to send their employees to work. Not a bill. No, a it rule. wasn't a bill. Sorry, you're right. It was a rule. It was a rule. And, and we were, it was a preview of things to come. And now that this has passed, um, and again, I, the 25-page amendment that never got any kind of hearing, um, I think that I feel like that should be um, very alarming to all the Coloradans that that just happened. 
Well, look, I've been involved in bigger bills in terms of pages at the last minute, um, combining bills. It's not uncommon to combine things at the end of session that have died or installed in other places. So that's how we make sausage, for those of you familiar with that term. Uh Um, And it is as gross as it sounds. Uh, (laughs) Now the hard work of monitoring it and being engaged, I mean, you know, the, the proponents of this bill are always going to show up, you know, because they're they're in it for their reasons that they care deeply about. Um, and um, those who who want to continue to live and work in a good economy are, um, and a fair and to, make, and to make sure this is implemented fairly are going to have to show up now um, as it's implemented. And we don't like what they see. They're going to have to go to court or they're going to have to go back to the legislature and the governor and seek relief. We just made a whole lot more work for ourselves is what we did with that. Well, as a lobbyist, I would say that's job security, right? (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. right You know know what? Um, This is the best state in the country to live in. Um, And it's taken a long time to get where we're at. And we can figure this out. Right. Um, can Can we talk about 1324? 1324 is a bill that um, it, it very much related to the energy and, and, and kind of the energy evolution away from fossil fuels. And this was a bill that uh, in specifically or more specifically will allow XL Energy some certainty from the Public Utilities Commission to do up to 300 megawatts in areas where, we're, where, where it's anticipated more fuel switching will go on. And so what do I mean by that? Where coal plants will shut down, natural gas plants will convert into some other technology. So in Northeast Colorado, uh, in Northwest Colorado, and in places like Pueblo, it allows a, a signal to the Public Utilities Commission, look, let them go out and experiment um, with um, rate, uh, caps to rate payers and with some discretion, common sense discretion to the Public Utilities Commission to use experimental utility scale technology um, to see what is the next step of beyond wind and solar. Wind and solar will not be enough to get to a zero carbon economy. Um, so what technologies can be used with those consumer safeguards um, to get to that next mile or that last 20% to get to 100% green, um, clean energy um, and stabilize local property tax base by and, and, and to help preserve jobs in those economies now. Um, that's what this bill does and, and signals to the PUC that it's important to do that. Action 22 and the voices in Southern Colorado were very important in the legislature, Senator Simpson and others, who were instrumental in making sure that with those safeguards in place, we should go ahead and and start looking at what does energy look like moving on past fossil fuels in a responsible way instead of, oh yeah, we're going to shut that plant down in a year. We better start thinking about expectations for 2030 start today with the passage of that bill. Couldn't be more uh, um, proud of that bill. It's something that I worked on on behalf of Excel Energy and, and all of you. Um, and it's a really important bill for these rural communities and, and it wouldn't have been possible without Action 22. Well, thanks. Um, that was one of the things that I think we can put in the win column. Um, and I don't know that there was a lot that 
there was a lot of settling. Um, there's a lot in the settlement, you know, settling for it column. And then there was this one that was a win. And I was really, I was really proud that we were actually able to get that done. Um, so what, uh, for those of us who are routinely in the arena, um, what is the summer going to look like for everybody? No, I think the legislature is going to go back to normal. So starting in around July or end of July, 1st of August, we're going to start talking again about how do we want to finance schools? How do we want to spend these federal stimulus dollars? Um, how do we want to look at transportation, um, higher ed, those kind of things? All of those conversations will continue on. 2024 is an election year. It's a big one. All of the governor and one down will be on the ballot. We're going to, you're going to be talking about redistricting later on, but all, every legislator is going to be running in a new district. And so um, um, I'm not sure as much will get done by the legislature in 2024, because I think they'll have to not only keep an eye in both political parties on um, policy conversations in the legislature, but they'll also have an eye on the new people that they'll represent, new districts that they're going to want to ask them to return them to the legislature. And um, every we do that every 10 years. And I think that will dominate a lot of what we do starting now. Um, I agree with you. Um, and with that, uh, and you can stick around and, and weigh in on with your thoughts on this, but we do want to talk a little bit about redistricting. So this is something the Action 22 uh, Board of Directors, uh, we've been working on this and we started this conversation um, I'm, I'm going to say we even went back and, and came out uh, in support of the amendment uh, in 18 or whatever year that was. Um, but this was a really important, we knew this was going to be important on the redistricting, and we wanted to have at least our objectives as an organization in place. And, and so we started having this conversation back in October at our annual meeting, um, and we've been carrying it through every single meeting that we've had since then. The whole idea is that in order... What matters most to those we serve is um, that they are adequately represented. That's the most important thing to them. And it's, it's a thing that was heavy on, on their mind. And it was heavy on our mind is how we get that, make sure that that happens. Um, especially when you're talking about the incredibly strong urban base that we see up north. So um, our proposal was that if there was going to be um, a redistricting, that it was seven, and now we know for sure that it's eight, that at least two of those districts should be purely rural districts. Uh, and then the urban areas can figure out what needs to happen with those other six districts, but it needs to be two um, very strong rural ones. Um, so we got together with uh, Club 20 and Pro 15. We uh, put our heads together, and there's a map that you've, everybody has seen. The Denver Post ran that map last week, um, and it's it simply is there's four objectives, and in order to, because the whole idea of redistricting is not to allow gerrymandering to continue or to get rid of that practice. Um, we were initially the response initially was sort of okay and a little bit of confusion because we got our map to the commission and had the conversation with the commission very early on. We felt like those went really, really well. Um, but something interesting happened yesterday, and Brian, you testified to the commission yes. yesterday. Yes, so I talk did. a little bit about that because I don't know how many people heard that. Um, it, <clears throat> so you had already done it once, and I was talking to the same people that you talked to. 
And the way I ran it was like, hey, look, here's our map. This is what Action 22 is. You've seen what we endorse along with Pro 15, Club 20. Um, and I just opened it up to questions. That was it. And, you know, one, one question that, that came up that is interesting when it comes to the map that we endorse was, well, how would you feel about Douglas County being lumped in with Pueblo County? Because right now the, the 4th Congressional District has Douglas County in it. And, you know, I straight up said, like, you know, as it stands now, and I know the maps can't be based off of current congressional districts, but in the current dynamic of things, the population is Weld County and Douglas County. So the representative, um, for better or worse, does not need to come down to southeastern Colorado. Um, you know, you have to focus on the constituents that you represent, and that is going to be Douglas County and Weld County. And I said, well, if you include Douglas County and in our proposed map, Pueblo County is going to be on that side, the fourth district or whatever district they call it. And it's included with Weld County. So with that, it kind of balances that. It balances it out. It's like a yin yang. You know, right. it's like you have a, a huge population center up here and another one down here and then everything in between. And that would require for proper re representation to go from Weld County to Pueblo County and everything around. Um, when they asked if how I felt about Douglas County being included in it, I'm like, well, that would dilute Pueblo. I, I mean, Southern Colorado right there, because then you would still have two thirds of the population up north and, you know, the rest down here. Um, the, the other issue, and if you read my quote in the paper about it, um, one issue that was brought up, and I even said, I, I don't like this and I don't agree with this, but you have a, a Western Slope District and an Eastern Plains District. And Eastern Plains is weird. I think it's kind of a misnomer because Eastern Plains includes like the San Luis Valley, right. um, Pueblo. It's basically everything over the, the mountains. The divide, on, yeah. On the right side. You look at Colorado, it's the right side of the mountains. And the map that we endorse, it does put Alamosa and everything west of that into the Western Slope District. And one concern was, well, you're splitting up these communities of interest, specifically the Latino community in this area, because you have ties from Pueblo to Alamosa to Trinidad. And, you know, my, my response is, no, it's not perfect, but it's based off of population. And as it currently stands, you have Pueblo in one district and Trinidad in a different district. And, and I, I didn't say this, but I should have. And, and it's kind of like, you know, we're not talking about building a border where it's going to cut off Alamosa from Huerfano County. You know, the, this is the best of all the options based on population. Um, and, and it's, in my opinion, the map as it stands that we endorsed is better than the map we have now. I agree with you on that. So here's what was interesting that happened yesterday um, as that was going on is that the Colorado Hispanic Chamber of Commerce um, proposed a map and they had this, they have, so this is a really, the map that they proposed, I'm, I'm going to get into the problems I have with that map in just a second. In four minutes. In four minutes. <laughs> but let me just say that, um, you know, Action 22, Club 20, Pro 15, we got together, they're, we're not getting any funds or any money no. to push this map. It's because it's the right thing to do and it does, it averts gerrymandering. And it follows the exact letter of the law. This was clearly a very well-funded, very um, 
broad campaign well, it, it for is. this map. And here's my but here's my problem with it. And it was there's there's no doubt about it. Yeah. There's, they had a video with it. They had all yeah, of this yeah, stuff. That's fine. And so and that's fine. Except for here's the thing, the idea that you would put a Douglas County in the same um, congressional district, and and by the way, Douglas County is the seventh wealthiest county in the United States. That you're going to put them in the same congressional district as Los Animas County or Pueblo County or any of our Eastern Plain counties. Which um, Douglas County is in the same district as Los Animas County right now. Right now, and we, they and are. we're seeing how that's going. And we see how that's going. And expect that they're going to get the same representation as Los Animas County would get the same representation as the as the population in Douglas yeah. County. Yeah. That's and, my problem. And, and it's, it's just a proposed map. The thing that um, people have to understand is that these are just ideas that these groups are putting together and the commission is going to release a map, I believe, June 24th. And that's when you really got to put the work into it. We have to see what they're thinking after all this input and what they come out with, whether we're going to fight it or we're going to support it. Right. Um, or, you know, be neutral in it, too. Um, the the biggest takeaway from the, the meeting yesterday for me was that uh, we look at our map and all the maps and it's El Paso County is going to be its own district. But El Paso County might be too big to be its own district. And so the question of the day yesterday is like, if you had to split El Paso County, how do you split that? Do you put the western side of El Paso County with the western slope? Do you put the eastern side with the eastern plains? Do you put the northern Lake Monument area in with a Denver district? Or do you put, and this actually was not brought up in, in it. And if they would have asked me this question, if like you had to split El Paso County how would you do it? And I would say that, you know, Fountain, Fountain Security Area would be great to go with Pueblo County if you had to split it. And the reason for that is, A, the big thing is the military. One third of Fort Carson is in Pueblo County, and the majority of the people that work there, a big chunk, live in Fountain and Pueblo County. Yeah. And that would have been my solution. It's like, you can split it at Fountain and put that in Pueblo. But so we're, we're out of time. Point. We're out of time. But Mike, will you stick around? And I, because I'd love to hear what you um, have to say on this, and then that this will go to YouTube. So um, join us. Oh, sorry, Chad Borthman. I know that you're listening, but that's okay because I'm going to see you tomorrow at the board meeting. So I will harass you then. Um, join us next week when we learn a little bit more about uh, Brian's plans for a whiskey distillery here in Pueblo. Um, we're all very excited to hear about that. Um, and I'm going to ask a lot of overly complicated questions. Join us next week. We'll see you then. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.